This is Saren Kohli. You're listening to We Are All Africans. What is your name and what does it mean? My first name, Olajmaka, is a Yoruba name. And the tradition in my mom's ethnic group, the Creole people, is often to give children Yoruba names. And this has to do with like our complex history as a people, the Creole people. Um, and so my name in Yoruba, I've been told, you know, loosely translates to something like treat her well, but don't spoil her or something like pamper this child, you know, come and love this child, but don't overdo it. You know, that, that kind of sentiment. Um, so I love, I'll take some spoiling, but you know, uh, according to my name, I'm not supposed to be spoiled, just a little pampered in love. And I have a middle name, which is Tokozile. And again, just going off of what I've been told, um, I think this name is Zulu. And it means joy has arrived. My dad's mother was from South Africa. And so um, she gave me my middle name. And I think it's such a, a beautiful blessing that she gave me this name. Uh, and then my last name, Warite, is Mandingo, my dad's ethnic group. And uh, I remember learning one time when I was a kid that it has to do some with something, um, it has something to do with being herders, like goat herders, if I remember correctly. <laughs> So I should fact check with my family. <laughs> but as far as I remember, uh, Wariti is a, a Mandingo name. And so uh, my dad's side of the family comes from that area originally around like Guinea and Sierra Leone. And um, we're a pretty large family that's located in many parts of Freetown, Sierra Leone, and then I have a whole bunch of cousins here in the United States as well. How does it go when you meet Nigerians? <laughs> I love this question. It happens all the time. I'll meet Yoruba people and they'll start speaking to me in Yoruba and I'll be like, I'm sorry, I have to disappoint you. Let's just <laughs> clarify this really quickly. <laughs> so it, it often happens. So we'd be like, oh, Bonnie. I'm like, ah, no, sorry. I can't help you. <laughs> I just don't have all the Yoruba connections you're looking for. So 
you know, it, it's fun in a way because I feel so connected to a lot of different um, African people, different ethnic groups across the continent. Even though I'm not Yoruba, you know, having spent some time in Nigeria and uh, being a consumer of Nollywood, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's just so many ways that I relate to Nigerians and um, I have a lot of Nigerian friends and just have a good time. Lots of Niger pride. <laughs> and really, I, I have so many amazing Nigerian friends so I, I feel like oftentimes I'm, I'm sort of trying to hang with, you know, <laughs> hang with the Nigerian community just because it's so large and so much of our, at least my cultural references also go back to Nigeria. Um, but, you know, when it comes to talking about jollof rice and things like that, that's when I start to distinguish myself. I'm like, no, 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 I'm from Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. We make really good jollof rice. I'm sorry, Nigeria. I'm sorry, Ghana. I know you you people, you have ongoing feuds, but I just, you know, have to say we're a small but mighty country when it comes to our jollof rice making. Tell me about your upbringing. My upbringing was... I think mostly immersed in Creole culture. Um, My mom and dad both spoke to us at home in Creole and in English. And we were part of this very vibrant community of Sierra Leoneans in Nairobi at the time. And so I've, Immediately, even though it was I was living in Kenya, I immediately identified with Sierra Leonean food and culture, and um, that that felt to me like who I was all through my childhood. Um, even though I started speaking Kiswahili at some point when I was a baby, when I was a young person. Uh, once I started attending school, I went to these British primary schools where they discouraged us from speaking Kiswahili and, you know, I, I took to it. So I stopped speaking Kiswahili. I started speaking more English in school and I eventually lost my Kiswahili. And, and then I was living in this uh, Sierra Leonean community in, in Nairobi. And I would say a little larger than that, this West African community in Nairobi. We just had um, so many family, friends that Every weekend we'd be at somebody's house, you know, somebody's cooking something or some celebration. Our parents used to be up to the wee hours of the morning, just having a good time. I remember them. They'd be laughing and we'd fall asleep and like there'd be six, eight, ten children just in one room while the parents are like having fun or something in the living room. And we'd like fall asleep at two in the morning and they'd carry us away afterwards. But it was um, just this very vibrant community of West Africans in Nairobi that uh, that was my that was my home. Those different mothers and aunties and older cousins and they all raised me. They all raised me and you know. Uncle so-and-so would have to mentor somebody because they'd stepped out 
a line, you know, <laughs> there'd be some serious conversations about why were you at the club? <laughs> you know, I saw you <laughs> as a 13 year old, you should like, <laughs> you should know that's not a place for you. Um, but yeah, that was also part of my upbringing, just this, this sense of fun, both in my home life and then with my friends, just uh, going out as a teenager and whether we were at tournaments, people were playing football or hockey or something like that, or, um, you know, whether it was church, my family is very Christian and uh, on my dad's side of the family, uh, we're, we're split Christian and Muslim. And so it's, it's always this presence of, uh, a strong spiritual religious grounding that was, was part of my childhood and just part of the ongoing nonstop events. There's just always events <laughs> somewhere to be <laughs> somebody's, you know, cooked for like 50 to 80 to a hundred plus people. And I feel like it's such a fundamental and core cultural norm in the different West African communities that I've been connected to where we show up for each other, you know, things, uh, life is hard. And so when it's hard, I feel like, um, I I've seen so many instances of people showing up for each other and then there's lots to celebrate, you know, like engagements and babies being born and named, you know, I, I think there's just like one reason after the, the other, that we've created to, to get together and be in community. Did you keep this sense of community when you moved out of like, well, you were in this West African community in East Africa, but then when you moved to the US, how was the, how did you carry that with you or did you create something else? I will say that I've carried it in, in some ways. And I've seen opportunities to build it in others that I haven't necessarily wanted to jump on. Like I've, I've been a little bit picky in a way um, since I'm out here in, in the U.S. And my own experience has been when I was a student in college, I gravitated really hard to African students. I was part of that African Students Association, you know, in, in my university. And I just felt like I wanted people who I think had similar taste in music <laughs> and in what it means to have a good time. And I wanted to just feel validated and, and not have to explain like geography all the time. Like, oh no, Sierra Leone is over here in West Africa. Oh no, no. Oh, you know somebody from Mali? Oh great, okay. Well, I don't know that person. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I wanted to just have a different kind of experience relating to people. Um, and so I found community and home in like African students associations. And then I like, I went to Northwestern for college. So it's in Evanston and I would go into 
Chicago proper and again, find my Nigerian uh, restaurants and, you know, find uh, grocery stores where I could shop for some of the, the things that I really want to make sure I have some palm oil and, you know, <laughs> get my, my uh, suya when possible. Um, so I tried really hard my first few years to just stay connected and I thankfully have, like I've mentioned, some cousins in the U.S. I have family in the U.S. And so uh, there'd be moments where I'd travel to spend Thanksgiving with a family member, for example, and um, just really try and have this community that's scattered in different places but strong. And I found over the years, um, I found myself really gravitating towards specific family members or specific friend groups and moving farther away from some of the larger African events that called me before. Because uh, I, I, I think it, for me, has been so important to just uh, recognize as much as I connect with different African groups and people uh, there are also moments where I don't feel connection, and that's okay. I have a beautiful and large community of uh, African and non-African friends uh, here in the U.S. and outside. So I feel okay. One of the, the question that I would like to ask you, because you were born in Africa and you were among Africans and everything, when did you realize that you were African? I think I realized I was Black first and that became uh, a difference that I really noticed. So growing up in Nairobi, there's a pretty large population of like British, white British settlers. There's a pretty large Indian population. Um, Nairobi's a really cosmopolitan place. And so um, there's just a lot of different nationalities present. And so I would have moments in school or when I went to um, a shop where I just noticed that people were being treated differently, you know? Even as a kid, I was like, what just happened? Like, mm, that didn't seem right. Um, or, you know, we would have conversations uh, in the house about, oh, you know, the Indian people are doing this, 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 this. Like, we, we were definitely talking about people too. When I got to the States, I was... Again, I, I was in Evanston. Um, I was attending this predominantly white institution. And the, the fact that all of a sudden I was like a racial minority was incredibly shocking to me. And so, you know, I was trying to navigate like what it means that all these people look differently from me and like are talking about um, 
like there was the obsession with thinness. I noticed that immediately when I came to to the States um, and, and just in that community that I was in. And I was like, hmm, okay, all right. Uh, what's going on here? And, and people would ask me who I am and where I'm from. And I had to make a shift from saying like, oh, I'm from Sierra Leone because literally people just didn't know where I was. They had no idea. And, you know, there's only so much of like a geography lesson I want to, you know, do in an introduction. Like, all right, let's simplify this. I'm African. So I, I remember making this shift that first year in the United States where I I was no longer Sierra Leonean first. I was African first. And I was Black <laughs> first, you know, <laughs> that um, these, these two identities really shaped my experience in a big way. And it was stark and difficult to manage. I remember my first week in college, these smart Northwestern students, but you know, not smart about everything. Uh, they started asking me like, how did I hear about the university? And I was like, the internet, you know, I looked it up and I applied on the internet. I talked to somebody who knew something about it in person, you know, like I, I you know, I, I learned about it through the information available online. And uh, they were like, wow, you had computers. They're like, oh, so you, d- you didn't live in a tree hut? There was no understanding of what my life could have been like and just the narrow stereotype that I was being viewed through as either, you know, living in a tree hut, running around with lions, or, you know, this assumption that I had to be some sort of royal princess of some high-powered family. And I'm like, you know, they're actually just some middle-class folk. (laughs) You know, I'm not, I'm not like your wealthy princess that you have in mind. And I also lived in a city and I, I went to school and I had the privilege of going to school with computers. And so, you know, that's, that's, I had to sort of explain who I was in, in so many ways that I, I didn't want to. And so simplifying as much as possible, I think was my unconscious strategy. Did you feel, because for you it's simplifying, but, but it was like being African, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to you? But what, what did that mean to these people then? That the, Those who didn't know where Sierra Leone was, and I don't know, they know where Africa is, but they have no idea about what it means. What I got from the questions and the responses people had to me is that what it means to be African is either you're impoverished or you're caught up in some sort of um, elite, probably corrupt family. Um, And I, I got the sense that there was some sort of pity, whether it was said or not, but like, oh, wow, you know, like you're from Africa. Oh, you know, like this assumption, oh, you've, you've conquered so much to be here, you know? And I think it's true. 
definitely I've worked hard and my family and others have worked hard because of challenges that we faced, but I, I don't appreciate the pity. Um, it's really unnecessary, especially, you know, here we were saying earlier a few minutes ago, how much fun I had as a kid, you know, how much you also relate to the party scene and the vibrancy. I think, I think there's just such a, uh, an unfortunate myth that Western culture or, uh, whoever else has, has put on us, um, that we should be pitied, you know? So what being African means to me is so the opposite. I, I feel so much pride and so much gratitude for being African and the, the values that I think I associate with being African. Um, this notion we already mentioned about like such a strong sense of community as a value, you know, again, everybody sort of practices it differently, but it's just such a core value that I associate with being African and connecting over food, just cooking. I have so many good memories of being in the kitchen with my mom and my aunties and just cooking up delicious food. We know how to cook. We can't cook, you know, just like such tasty food. <laughs> and the world is missing out. You know, I think oftentimes about how few different kinds of African restaurants there are all over the, the United States. And I'm like, this is your loss. <laughs> like, <laughs> you all are missing out on delicious food. And it also means for me, being African also means uh, a strong connection to rhythm and dance. I personally relate so much to um, just all the ways our, our bodies move. And we, I think, release a lot of endorphins <laughs> and just have a good, good time. And I've appreciated YouTube <laughs> more than I thought I would uh, through this pandemic because it's just one way to have a quick dance party in the kitchen, you know, <laughs> put on some tunes and get down and learn some new moves and practice, 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 you know, because I don't know when I'm going to need to bust something out of the party. I just, I have to be prepared. When you talked about rhythm, there is some of the, there is something also that would call your soul in some ways. I like that. I like that language of like it, it does. It calls my soul. It speaks to me, and you know, I I think there's something very spiritual about dance, and yeah, I, I just know that we've inherited through our culture a lot of movements that are meant to heal and meant to bring joy and I'm glad for it. And you were talking about the so that your family is very religious. Did you have other spiritual beliefs when you grew up or just when now as an adult that are related to some beliefs that are in either your culture or other African cultures that made you um, connect 
more with your ancestry or your spirituality? I come from such a deeply faithful family. I think what I have learned most and appreciated most is the power of prayer and the power of giving things up to God and believing that God is in control. You know, I'm not in control. And it's a humbling belief to, you know, step outside of I can do these things or I can plan my way or I can plan my life. really appreciated that from my family as, as like a deep teaching. And in practice, my own beliefs are, are a little bit different from my nuclear family, for example. Um, and I have gravitated towards a more open set of spiritual practices that call in ancestors as well and call in um, angels of all sorts and I I hold that as part of my my spiritual practice to just know that I'm being held up by so many ancestors whose own sacrifices and energy you know continue to to build me up and, and hold us all <laughs> up in, in the way that I see things. Um, so I think I, I've reached a little bit into um, some of the ancestral recognitions and ancestral uh, acknowledgements that I feel like even my, my nuclear family has not necessarily, um, let me say they didn't raise me in that way. They raised me more in, in the church and raised me in, um, in, in some different spiritual practices, religious practices. And I've come to believe that my ancestors are part of it. So I'm, I'm calling them in and thanking them for, you know, making it possible for me to be here, <laughs> for me to be alive. You know, they, they really did a lot to survive. So what do you know about your ancestors? My dad also has roots in the United States. And so I know that my ancestors were enslaved people in the United States. I know that my ancestors were traveling people <laughs> from South Africa and from Guinea. I know uh, that my ancestors converged in Freetown and that they, they made impact in so many ways. So one of my uh, great-grandfathers uh, was a professor at Frabe College 
and um, I've read uh, Harry Sawyer's work and, you know, he was publishing um, and, and really helping to write our cultural and, and historical facts so that they wouldn't be written by other people in misrepresentative ways. And I know my grandfather on my dad's side was a reverend and that he uh, broke away from his family's religious path of um, Islam in, in very hard ways for the family. You know, there was, there was a fissure because his father was an imam. And so I know my, my ancestors are forgiving people in the ways that we've been able to get through some deep divides and that we're also fearless people because we've pursued a lot of dreams. My, my dad's mom, I mentioned, is from, was from um, South Africa. And uh, I know her, a little bit of her story was she was uh, from Cape Town and found her way somehow to London to study. And she was, I know, this is like early 1900s. And um, she was working for this white family as an au pair, as a nanny. And um, they somehow were, they moved to Sierra Leone because they were going to work in a missionary school and she moved with them and she met my grandfather and they, they started a family together. And so she didn't go back to South Africa. And I just think of, you know, what that would have been like at that time to, to say, you know what, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to stay here with these people who speak different languages and the culture's different, right? I, I just know that she was a fearless, strong woman. And she was an artist. So, you know, I'm just, I'm inspired by art. Uh, my dad uh, started his career in theater. I've had uh, my own short stint <laughs> as an actor. You know, like I've just wanted to... Um, immerse myself in the arts. There's, there's so much that we can learn from the storytelling practices, visual and theatrical and musical. And so I just feel like all this comes from the ancestors. What are the other identities that you think that you have and that you navigate through every day? For me, being a woman is another identity. I just have so much pride in, and I love, I love being a woman. Love, 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 love <laughs> being a woman. <laughs> and I think of uh, my own journey in defining my my womanhood and how, as a as a young person, I was very athletic, 
I loved to swim. I was like on a competitive swimming team. I was running track and I, I did discus, high jump. You know, I was that kid like trying to do all the sports, you know, and basketball, volleyball. I was all over it. Loved it. And I remember uh, being called a tomboy at different times. And I kind of, I took it on. I internalized it. I was just like, I guess I'm a tomboy, you know? And um, it must've been college or something where I started to just reframe my athleticism for myself and just be like, you know what? I am a really athletic woman, you know? Like that's what this is. And how wonderful that I'm strong and I have these like, chiseled biceps. (laughs) So I've just really appreciated coming into this idea of like, I love being a woman. I love being an athletic woman. Um, I, I love the outdoors. So I, I currently live in a place where there's hiking trails all over there are gorges and waterfalls and in the summer I just I go swimming and I hike and I love doing these things you know every now and then I'll see like a little snake and scream and you know make more noise than I need to but I do love being outside and it it just feels like much like dancing like we talked about there's something about being out in nature especially swimming um that that I feel so much connection to the earth, to to the world, to myself. It's like an instant reboot and recharge. And I I just feel nourished. I have a history of depression. And I think this is one of those intersecting identities that we struggle with as Africans, if I could say something in a generalized way. Um, I know that depression is an illness and that it has a variety of symptoms and that it's not something that you can necessarily just say a prayer for and it'll go away or, you know, it's, it's something that just requires medical attention like other illnesses. And what that looks like can be so different. I'm a fan of therapy and I have all sorts of family members who, you know, I can remember from when I was a child, people saying disparaging things about anybody with any kind of mental illness. And so, you know, I think this has been a part of my identity that I have not wanted to disclose when I I got depression you know, like my mid twenties or something like that. And, um, I, I know that part of it was this like shame that I had been taught to feel from my culture. And so part of why I think it's important for me to talk about it is just to like encourage other people who maybe have their own struggles with depression and are also Africans you know, to know that it's okay. Africans get depressed too. <laughs> don't, don't, don't believe the hype. <laughs> don't believe anybody who tells you we don't get depressed. We get depressed. And there's a lot of ways out of depression. 
We just have to, I think, start by calling it what it is. How did you get diagnosed with depression? Thankfully, I pay attention to my patterns a lot. I'm, I'm very self-aware of when I'm doing self-destructive things. <laughs> um, so for me, again, I know it, it manifests differently for different people. But, you know, I like a glass of wine. I do. And then I was like, oh, I'd like another glass of wine or another glass of wine. And so I was able to just notice really quickly, like, I was drinking <laughs> and, uh, you know, in, in ways that were unusual for me. I, I was aware that I didn't feel a lot of joy at the time, that I was um, very stressed and I could tell I was down. Um, and so I just reached out to uh, a friend initially who I knew had seen a particular therapist and just asked if they thought that that person, that therapist might be available. So I would say I was, I was pretty just proactive about recognizing that, think that I wasn't okay and being able to say that I needed some help. You are the flexible one in all type of situation. So how do you think that this has impacted the person you are? So you make other people comfortable. Who makes you comfortable? I have noticed over the years, like I'm a chameleon. I change my colors in different contexts and I'm still the same chameleon. The challenge for me is to make sure that I'm not changing in ways that are out of my integrity or I'm not changing in ways that are burdensome and, and excessively frustrating or annoying to me. You know, like there's, there's a limit to how much I want to change before I'm like, uh-uh, here, you just, you just pressed up against the boundary, like no more, okay? Um, so that's sort of the dance that I, I do when I'm around so many different people. And, and I think this has been a coping mechanism, a survival strategy, uh, as, as, a, as a person who grew up in so many different settings. You know, like I have to know how to be in my British primary school. I had to know how to be on the streets of uh, Nairobi. And then we would go home to Sierra Leone and I'd have to know how to be in Freetown. And then we were in Lagos. And then, you know, I was like doing research for my PhD in Accra, you know, like I've been trying so hard to figure out how to be successful in social settings. And I've found lots of ways to do it. So that's the good news. <laughs> the, the cost is that, um, Sometimes I'm not great about establishing those boundaries that I want to set. And I, I go a little bit into tilt and I have to recalibrate, you know. So uh, I've had moments with people where they're like, oh, you're so nice or you're so accommodating. Or um, this one woman in Accra, <laughs> she's like, you're so soft. I was like, uh, okay, <laughs> all right. 
I have a feeling that's not a compliment, but okay. <laughs> you know, so I think what happens is uh, people assume often that I'm going to be a walkover or that they can take and take and take from me. And that's just going to be, you know, unending. And when they find that moment where I'm like, stop, uh uh-uh. And, you know, it's really jolting to some people. Um, And so I'm actively working on just being more forthright about my beliefs, my values, my boundaries. And I I will say it's, it's daily work for me. I, I don't think it's so much like, oh, I'm getting older and wiser. I think I'm just getting stronger in myself. When do you feel most African? I, I really feel like the party scene is where things happen for me. You know, like... When I'm socializing in different, I would say, West African spaces where, where I just feel this sense of just bliss. It's just blissful. Like the laughter, I, I feel like I can access a different kind of belly laugh. I feel like I I can eat food that just like just satisfies my belly in such a profound way. And I I just feel there are moments where I'm socializing with different West African friends of mine um, where I just feel totally free. And if there's some like Afro beat on or, you know, somebody puts on a Yemi Alade song that I want to get down to uh, or, you know, some Kizomba and it gets a little sexy, you know, like th- those are just the moments where um, I, j- I just feel at home in, in the space with other people. Thank you so much, June, for sharing your beautiful spirit with us. Thank you for trusting me with your story. This is Saren Coley, and that's the last episode of the first season of We Are All Africans. See you soon. <laughs>